Hi all, welcome to Mending Our Fences, a podcast series where folks from the ag and body-mind health worlds come together to take a look at some of the everyday hard things that come with ag life, take them apart to figure out what makes them hard, and put them back together in sometimes surprising ways that hopefully provide some hope and possibility. I'm Lisa O'Hara. I am a clinical social worker. I've been in the field for about 25 years, and I specialize in trauma and resilience. Hi, I'm Josh Taylor, and I'm with the University of Vermont Department of Community Development and Applied Economics. I work with farmers from all backgrounds, providing risk management education and facilitating farm management teams, connecting farmers with any resources they need to solve complex problems. Hello, I'm Ginger Fenton, and I work with Penn State Extension as an extension educator who focuses on dairy production, farm safety, food safety, and farm stress. So I interact with dairy farmers and their families, dairy processors, including on-farm processors, and as a farmer myself, I'm also involved with our local agricultural community. Hi all, I'm Maria Papitas. I also am an extension educator focusing on family and consumer sciences with the University of Delaware Cooperative Extension. I work with all sorts of families and with farmers, primarily around farm stress, financial management, estate planning, and health insurance. So I'm so glad everybody's here and I can't wait to hear your stories and pick your brains about things that will be useful to people listening. So each session, we're going to focus on an experience from Ag Life, um, explore the challenges that those experiences bring, and we're going to talk about them to learn about what makes them hard to go through and maybe make them easier to talk about. Regular life can feel so regular that sometimes we're in the middle of hard and challenging times and we may not notice the impact they're having. This podcast is hopefully going to help us to take a look at those hard things, figure out what makes them hard, and hopefully make them easier. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about connection to the land. It's something that I think has a Lots of people have lots of feelings about, um, I know, tradition and the idea of people feeling like they're called to farm, um, but in addition to other folks who, who, either, who either born into it and believe that there's a calling, there's a family legacy, um, other folks who come upon it later in life, um, but either way, there's lots of feelings about it, and it can be a source of pride and a source of grounding, but it can also be a source of a lot of stress. And so I was wondering what you guys have experienced in terms of people you've worked with and how they've come to talk to you about the, the good and the hard stuff related to um, their connection to the land and what it means to them and to their families. I think um, in general, most farmers take pride in the appearance of their farm. And the image that they project, I mean, we're, we're producing food and we want people to realize that their food comes from a, a wholesome place and that the, the people doing that take pride in, in their farm, in the appearance, um, in the care of their land. You know, I find sometimes when I go to a farm, if the, maybe the appearance isn't quite what a farmer would like it to be. If it's muddy, um, if there's equipment parked everywhere, they're very apologetic and they have a hard job. You know, I understand they're very busy and maybe that falls secondary to taking care of the animals and making sure that we get hay made and getting crops planted. And, you know, maybe they're, they don't need to be, be apologetic or feel ashamed that it doesn't quite look like they would like it to at that time. I feel like somewhat related to what you're saying, Ginger, about um, both, I think, like farmers' pride in their connection with their farm and, and uh, wanting to have a farm that represents them in, in its appearance and maybe conjures up sort of classical or stereotypical notions of, of what a farm is or should be. And I think 
when you're on a, a, a working farm, maybe you, you don't have the, the time, especially, or maybe the money to be doing, you know, landscaping along your driveway or around the barn or that sort of thing. And at the same time, you might have neighbors that might also be farming, but it might really be more like a hobby farm and they might have those resources. And so I think that there is like a sort of, uh, sometimes you can compare ourselves to our neighbors. And I think that creates a sort of, I think that reinforces the idea of what a stereo, stereotypically of what a farm should look like. And then there's this more messy reality of, of an actual working farm. And, uh, and I think that that really relates to their, their connection with the land and their, their, um, the meaning they find behind working it. And it's not just about making it look in a certain way, but it's really living that connection. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of meaning there and just in that work. Yeah. A lot of the farmers I have talked to, you know, they really think of themselves as stewards of the land. And so they are doing what they can to, you know, not only preserve the farm, um, but, you know, working towards um, keeping open space and trying to use best practices to keep the soil healthy or their animals healthy and, um, you know, recognize the interconnection between that resource of the land and the ability of what that land provides to um, the environment, to people, to the ecosystem uh, in, in, in and around their community. Um, they take all of that very seriously and have a lot of pride in um, that role as steward and a caretaker of that land. And, but, I, but I also know that there's oftentimes this tough decision-making, right? So as the ups and downs of the markets go or the cost of inputs or labor or or um, you know what they might the prices they might get for the commodities that they grow um, go up and down. There's often um, challenges in balancing the the kind of the costs of doing everything right to take care of the land and um, the, the realistic income that they're bringing in and how well that matches. So it sounds like there's, there are lots of challenges in terms of not only are we looking at land connection as identity because people feel called to do this work where they feel like it's been something from kind of an honor standpoint where they stay, they're, they're given this land from generations before them and they believe and they and they know that the honorable thing to do is to keep it in the family and then there are lots of extraneous circumstances that get in the way of possibly making that land be what they believe that it should be so i'm thinking you know ginger what you said about people being apologetic for the way their farms look if they really are literally places where people are working and so there will be equipment spread around and nature is going to have its way and so there will be mud um but yet there's also this sense of identity that's tied to what my farm looks like what it produces how how my farm impacts the environment how it impacts the community and it makes me think about sometimes you know just kind of in passing even though i'm i wasn't i don't live on a farm and i don't um have firsthand experience, I do hear people talk about agriculture. And sometimes I think I've heard farmers talk about getting a bad rap in terms of how they farm, how if they're not doing it right in terms of things like regenerative agriculture, or if they're, if financially they're not able to keep up with what they feel like they need to be able to do to make the farm look the way they want it to look. And I'm wondering if that's another source of stress that you guys have encountered in terms of folks that you've worked with? Yeah, I think, I think there's kind of, um, there's kind of two 
two competing realities, almost, I think of it as, in terms of the sustenance and vitality that most farmers get from, from farming and from their connection to the land. And then there's, there's the, on the other hand, there's the stressors that come with it. And thinking about how it's more, it's more than just a vocation or a livelihood. I think that there's um, really like all farmers that I've talked with and, and, and uh, connected with, there's a deeper psychological or maybe even spiritual connection with the land and the meaning of being there and working with it and, and finding that sustenance through that work and that connection with the land. And then there's the other reality of, of the stressors like you're talking about and, um, and thinking about how you can make a go of it and how, how difficult it is to farm today. Um, and, you know, that can lead farmers to thinking about how can they possibly maintain that connection to land and, you know, one, one answer that comes up time and time again for so many farmers is, well, maybe, maybe we need to sell part of the farm um, or maybe all of it and, and, you know, maybe sell that to someone who wants to develop it and subdivide it. And, um, and in some ways that seems like, especially maybe for someone outside of farming, that seems like an easy answer. It's like, oh, well, you know, this livelihood, your, your job is really difficult and not paying the bills. And you could make this windfall of money by selling off your, your land and, and having it developed. But I think psychologically for so many farmers, that's untenable to think that you could, you could do that. That would be heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard farmers talk about that actually in those terms, literally that, that their heart would stop if they weren't able to continue that connection to their land, their heart would stop. And I, I understand that. And I think that, that it's a really big conflict for, for farmers thinking about how important that connection is. And then also how difficult it is now to maintain that connection. So there's identity there and it's not just, it's not just a matter of, as you said, a job or a vocation, but it, what makes that so powerful is that it is part of who I am. And I guess it makes me think about how we as physical beings um, tend to want to separate. A lot of our culture teaches us to separate ourselves from the land and treat it as if what we do to it doesn't affect us. But in reality, a lot of farmers know firsthand that that's not true. And I think that that creates that does create a big conflict because here's something that you're rooted to, that you feel a strong connection to for good reason, because as your body spends time on that land and working that land, all of that experience comes into our bodies in a sensory way. So, it, and it's a way that we're not aware of. So when you're, when you're digging, when you're, um, just walking through a field and you're kicking up, like you're, you're crushing plants and you're kicking up scent from those plants when you are looking at that field, there it is making a physical impression on your body and your body remembers those experiences. So when people say, if I couldn't do this anymore, my heart would stop, that's true because there's a level of body-based connection that our culture really doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to and doesn't really pay a lot of respect to. But in reality, those folks that you're talking about absolutely know that if somebody were to disconnect them, whether it's a, a conscious choice they would have to make in terms of really hard financial decisions or whether something environmental happens like a flood or hail or drought that could that could make people feel disconnected from the rhythm of what they're used to. Um, it, it does make you feel like your body, your body reacts and your heart can stop because there's, there's grief there. There's a lot of pain in terms of what we started off talking about, the hard work, the dreams, the goals, the ideas of what this, what my connection to this land is and what it represents, not just to me, 
but to my family and generations that are going to come after me and the people who came before me who may have entrusted me with this. And so there's so, so there's so much in terms of identity that's connected to land legacy, but there's also, but it's, it's not just mental, it's physical too. Hearing this makes me think that um, in some ways, I think that uh, farmers are so optimistic because we always think that each year, you know, we're going to turn the corner. If we've dug a hole, we're going to get back out of it because the next crop or the next um, whatever idea it is, whether it's new equipment or a new building or you know, something different, that, that that is going to be what helps them turn the corner. And it's difficult. I mean, that doesn't always, that's not always the case. We get into this pattern, <laughs> I think. And, you know, like I said, you, you just get, you get overwhelmed sometimes and it's hard to keep that, that positive attitude up and, and to continue to think each year, I'm going to be able to bounce back and to, to feel that, you know, I always felt that if you took care of the land, then the land will sustain you. And it's expensive to do that. You mentioned the physical inputs, but just the costs too, especially with what we're seeing right now in agriculture. Um, our inputs have, have increased tremendously in cost and also to own the land itself and the amount of, of care, but also just the um, financial strain sometimes that owning a large amount of land required to operate a farm um, incurs. So there's also a lot of complicated feelings because there's there's the almost the physical bot that that body-based connection to something that feels like your soul. And then there are the other aspects of it that pull you in a bunch of different directions. There's the financial responsibility or the realities of it, the things that you can and can't control. So the weather being one of the ones that you can't. Um, and then how do you continue to reconcile the pool, the pool to honor that part of your identity while also weighing the pros and the cons of the costs of that? So am I, am I getting that right? So then the question I think becomes, what do we do about that? How do we normalize that a little bit and make, help people have an understanding that what they're going through, they're not alone with. I think when it comes to kind of land legacy is identity, um, or connection to land is identity rather, we, we also then encounter that, that kind of rugged individualism that our country was built on, this idea that we're not supposed to need anybody, that we're supposed to be able to do it all by ourselves, that kind of like John Wayne, we're all gonna mount our individual horses and ride off into the sunset, and that needing other people was for those folks back there, you know, it reminds me of that of of the scene um, in Shane when the little kid comes running out and says, "You know, Shane, Shane, my mother wants you." And you know, John Wayne just goes heading off into the sunset, leaving everybody behind. That idea of I I I have people who would like to connect with me, but I don't need that, and I'm not allowed to need that. And so it makes me think about how isolating that internal sense of identity, and maybe even a generational sense of identity, because if you've inherited this farm from your family and they may have inherited it from their family, there's this idea of, you know, this is in your blood. It's supposed to be in your blood. We have bestowed this on you with the understanding that you are going to take care of it and, and continue to grow it the way we have. And yet, as you're saying, Ginger, the fiscal realities and the, just the time and the energy are things that, that may preclude people from being able to, to do it. And so how do, you, how do you reconcile those two pools? One, one being that this is a part of who I am and the other being that there are, there are aspects of maintaining this part of myself that may not be possible or sustainable. So if you got, so when I say that, have you seen that come up with people that you work with? Like if, have, have farmers reflected kind of that, that experience in terms of the pull between what it means to be connected to the land and then the possibility that, that there are factors that come into play 
it may mean that they can't. Yeah, I, I hear those sorts of conversations all the time with with farmers. Um, and I think one of the first steps in my mind to alleviating some of the stress of these situations and, and maybe making it a little bit easier, I hope, is having conversations like this, because I think that a lot of people in America think that farming is challenging, but not sometimes as impossible as it feels like it really is. And I think as, as a general society, we need to be able to talk about these things more and, and really admit how extremely challenging it is. Um, and I think having more public awareness um, and commitment to more advocacy is really important and advocacy for farmers by others like us and others that aren't necessarily farming, but um, you know, work with farmers and, and um, are concerned about it. And also I think it's really hard to understand how a farmer could find time for this, but I think also self-advocacy. Um, and I can think of a, a family farm that I've been working with that really puts a lot of effort into talking with policymakers and, um, and doing their best to, to amplify their voice. Um, and at the same time, they're, you know, they're really politically active and they're also really struggling and they're, you know, struggling to pay the mortgage on land that they bought back and brought back into their family after losing it. And, um, and they're looking at other models and they're like, well, we don't want to sell our land. Uh, we don't want it to be developed. And yet every innovative thing they're doing and doing really well, it's just not paying the bills. And so now they're beginning to think more, well, maybe, you know, what, what could other things, um, what other things with the land could help them sustain themselves? And so maybe that's more agritourism. And I think that seems that might feel uh, foreign or kind of weird to them. And also they're beginning to see that, that they really have to think outside the box. And if they want to keep on farming things that are maybe not actually really profitable in a larger sense, um, they might need to support those with other, um, other economic aspects like, like agritourism, like I said, and, and that's, um, in some ways that feels kind of tragic to me really that, that that's what maybe one needs to do to be able to farm is, is having multiple income streams, some of which maybe don't feel like farming to a farmer. Um, and I guess I don't have a clear answer, but I think, I think advocacy and conversations and beginning to think about other, other ways of doing business, I guess, um, it feels hard to say that. You know, I think you bring up a really good point, and that is that another thing that our culture, so I want to normalize that a little bit, because I think another thing that our culture is not great at is recognizing how we're all connected. And I think that whole cultural story about being ruggedly individualistic not only applies to how we see each other as people, but it also extends to how we see larger activities in terms of how they intersect or interconnect with other activities. So we are kind of taught that what we do over here only affects what we do over here and what we do over here, vice versa. But what I'm hearing you say in terms of looking at ways of talking, I think the talking part is so important because number one, if we're all talking together, we're actually then putting, you know, two heads are better than one. Sometimes 10 heads are better than one. And so when people are talking together, they're doing a whole bunch of really important things the first thing is that they are in that coming together. There's a level of, of we, we call it neurobiological co-regulation, meaning that oftentimes when we're distressed, if we can bring the information that's distressing into a group of people that we experience as supportive and share that information, it takes our bodies out of that stress response and helps us calm down. And when we're calm, the part of our brain that we need to make good decisions actually activates 
So then we're able to put our heads together and think creatively. In that in interaction, there's a whole bunch of important things that happen. So that there's the grounding part where the, the creative part of your brain comes back online that allows you to think more clearly. There's also that sense of being not isolated. I'm having this issue. Chances are, if I'm able to bring this issue and shine some light on it, other folks who are having a similar feeling about the conundrum of this is in my blood, it's my responsibility to, to sustain this and make it work, but I can't because there's all these factors that are getting in the way, allows us to share the burden of all that, all the stress and all the pressure. And, and another piece of that is that from a brain function standpoint, the longer we stay in a situation in an isolated way, we have to cope with it. And oftentimes our coping strategies are involuntary things that we adopt because in the short term, they take the pain away. The problem is that when we adopt those things over and over again, the, the, the neural pathways that get created in our brain, that basically is learning, end up solidifying, they myelinate, and it means they become habitual. So if you're already doing something that's creating stress for you, if you put yourself in a situation where you're not exposed to more information and different ways of looking at things, you keep doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting to get a different result, which I do believe is the um, definition of insanity. So when we talk about talking, we're talking about talking from the standpoint of bringing people together to reduce isolation with overwhelm. And this can be really overwhelming. It also allows us to be creative. So when you come together and really share what you're experiencing with other people, you get the possibility of a lot more input and a lot more different perspective, which then moves you away from that habitual way of problem solving that may be keeping you stuck. And then lastly, when you talked about talking, I think if you think about you know, agribusiness and the idea of agritourism, I realize that, that farmers who are doing this you know, out, out working, doing this work, don't want a whole bunch of you know, people wandering all over their farm getting into stuff. However, I feel like from a, a teaching standpoint, because we have this, this, this way of looking at things in our culture that doesn't encourage us to think about how what we do affects other people, people don't think about farmers. They don't think, they just take for granted that you know, when they go to the grocery store, the, the, the shrink-wrapped zucchini is going to be there whenever they need it. But if, if people are talking more, and talking to each other outside of the farming community in terms of education, um, working with farmers who might be willing to bring, bring people onto the farm so that people can see what happens and then that spreads. And so it's not, so then maybe the isolation sense of, you know, I'm in this by myself, nobody gets how hard this is, nobody gets what a sacrifice it can be, nobody gets how exhausting it is. I think getting information out to people who are not farmers so they can really learn to appreciate what goes into it. Um, so, when, so, so marketing better. Um, in, in addition to advocating to people like politicians you know, who have power to make decisions that affect people financially and, and land-wise, but I think just getting information out to the general public can help, help people appreciate what we have rather than take it for granted as so many people do. So that talking thing that you mentioned has so many potential, so much potential to change things and grow things away from that stuck place. I totally agree with you, Lisa. I think that I, well, I, well, I said, I think in some ways it maybe feels weird to think of needing to go into say agritourism or farm visit, farm state type, type areas. I also hear farmers saying exactly what you said, that they see it as an opportunity to connect with people that maybe aren't exposed to farming much or at all, and, and really see, see maybe a, a somewhat newer role for farmers in terms of um, educating our society, really, and, and um, fostering people's connections with uh, nature and community. Um, and so I think that there's, there's a lot of really big, um, really big benefits there that farmers do see and, and get from those sorts of, um, socioeconomic connections. I'd like to, to chime in that many of our farmers 
are farmers because they don't like to interact with people necessarily. <laughs> and so I guess I, I bring that up because there are programs that our various commodity groups have to help farmers, they say, tell their story or to help them and coach them with interacting with the public and scheduling events and um, knowing the best way to present maybe issues that are a little more difficult to talk to the public about. So there are certainly tools out there to help. I would suggest, you know, if you're a farmer and you work with a various commodity, if it's dairy, if it's soybeans, corn, whatever it is to reach out to your commodity group and see what kind of um, consumer education resources they have to help with that. I think you hit on something important too, Ginger, in that you're right. Not everybody is, is cut out to do to do the people work. You're right. That's very true. And I'm even being in the people business, there are days when I don't want to do the people work either. So I get it. So I think what you're saying is that there are resources out there that people can tap into to learn about what's already being done. But I think too, what Josh said in terms of continuing the dialogue, but broadening. And so being able to include people from various walks of life who wouldn't necessarily be there in terms of the commodities education, who wouldn't even think to, 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 be, to make themselves available to get that information. Because I think that those of us who like love the farm show and that, that kind of stuff, we're all about it. But when it comes to people who really have no idea where their zucchini comes from, there, I think there needs to be, and, and we need to think about ways to get that information to them because it's all connected. And I, it's when people start to see how connected it is and they can really wrap their heads around how it personally affects them, people get a little more interested. And so I think what, you know, what we're talking about is that there are the most important thing about helping people with land connection and to manage the, the, the conflicts that can come up around it are to, first of all, be able to acknowledge that that connection is real and it needs to be honored and valued and that it's not just a mental thing, it's a body-based physical thing that um, needs to be cared for and, and needs to be talked about and, um, and appreciated for what it is. And in addition, um, we also need to look at the practical parts, the sides of things where that are the financial pieces, that are the environmental pieces, that are the, the family conflict pieces that can, come, that can come up that complicate these things and create spaces for people to share those stories, to talk about them, to give information about resources that are available to give support with each of them, like the extension services, um, like like Farsan and other entities that exist to help ease those struggles. But I think overall, the thing that really strikes me, it takes me back to that whole rugged individualistic piece again. And, it's, and I think the value of this kind of podcast and the talking that we're talking about doing is to move people away from that sense of being isolated and alone with these kinds of issues towards a place of recognizing that yeah, we're not going to be able to have magic answers that are going to fix things tomorrow, but it can feel a whole lot better to feel connected and supported by people in the here and now. And so it makes me think about the resilience part of this and how, how we can help the folks that we work with be resilient and how they can help each other be resilient. And so from an individual standpoint, what can people do to, to kind of deal with the stress that, be, that can be created around possible interruption of land connection. And so that's continuing to talk with each other, um, to reach out to get support from people like Extension Services or Farsan um, or, your or your local um, ag cooperatives to find out what other resources do exist for you, um, to, to not keep it to yourself, to try to talk to your family about what you're struggling with and the, and the conflicts that are existing inside in terms of this being part of our identity, but then we also have to look at other ways to sustain it because what we've always done may not, may not work. And I know that in the farming community, there has been a lot more attention paid to innovation lately. I don't think that that's something that people in the general public are aware of, but I know that that has definitely been something people have paid attention to. Um, so from a community-based standpoint, I think it's giving space to one another 
So if someone comes to you and, and says, I want to talk about, I want to talk about this stressful part of, of my land connection and how and how I'm going to manage that if it feels like I need to sell my farm or if I need to consider other ways of, of making money from the farm that I are that I have, that we're able to be supportive and to not shut people down around that because we aren't, we aren't ruggedly individualistic. We really do need each other and we need to share stories. And that's where hope is and that's where healing happens. And then from a larger standpoint, I'm getting involved, getting involved politically and advocating for the changes that you want to see, the things that you think are important, um, talking with people about the roles you are willing to play. If there are certain parts, as like Ginger was saying, you know, I'm not a people person, so I don't want to deal with the people part. Um, what, what parts can you do? And if you're coming together with like-minded folks, who, there might be other people who are willing to do the people parts. Are, they are willing to open up their farms to do, to do farm stays and, and more agro-education. Um, and I think it's a matter of, of looking for those people in your community, learning who they are and coordinating efforts. But we're not gonna be able to coordinate any efforts if nobody ever identifies this thing as a problem. So it starts with talking. I have a, I have a, a, a story that kind of really builds off of that, uh, Lisa, because, you know, it was a multi-generational farm and um, kind of the, the current, I'll just say it, call them the seniors, right? Um, you know, wanted to maintain the farm and they had five children who now have, and now have grandchildren. And, you know, they, they kind of looked at, they, they kind of looked at it from not only a, how, how do I senior, senior generation uh, maintain the farm, keep the farm, but how do we as a family maintain the farm? And as they started to explore different ventures um, that could help bring in income, one of the things they really did was have a conversation around uh, with their children around, you know, what is it that you'd like to do to contribute? And, you know, what is that skill set, right? And so there were some of the kids who were like, I am all about marketing. I am all about finances. I'm all about, um, you know, kind of coming, you know, managing a pick your own, right? And so all of a sudden, the it wasn't just a how do I be resilient, it was how do we be resilient. And one of the kids, um, and, and actually subsequently one of the grandchildren is all about that advocacy piece. And so there is a newsletter, right, that uh, different people in the, in the family then have taken on. And so that, you know, I share that as a, as a positive, right, because they, for a couple of reasons. One was, you know, the senior um, farmers kind of like turned to their kids and said, look, we know you may not want to be on the land every day, you know, picking the apples, but these are some aspects. If we're going to grow the business and keep the farm viable, here are some other jobs that need to be done. And do any of those interest you? And um, what, so that was a way to kind of assess the skill set that was needed and help the children cultivate those skill sets so that what they did, they could do for the farm. Um, and so there was sort of that piece of it. But I think the other piece of it is sort of that reinforcing what you said, Lisa, about you can't do it alone, right? In this case, it was about turning to um, family members and community members to help uh, figure out a different way, right? Um, to help keep the land in farming and uh, keep the land in the family. So I think that as you're, as you're talking, one of the things that strikes me again, I go back to that the rugged individualism story that we tell each other and I do think that in our country, we've been really fortunate and also kind of we've been blessed and cursed, blessed with the idea that we've, we've had, a, we have a lot we can take for granted. And that 
That's, a, that's, that's amazing. We're really fortunate. And at the same time, it also puts us in a position where we do take things for granted. And so I think about, you know, Ginger, you were talking last time about dairy farmers, dairy farmers and the stress of dairy farming in that oftentimes farmers can't ever leave the farm, that they're, that if they are, it's just them and maybe their spouse, maybe they have some hired help, they never leave. And I don't think people in the, in the regular public know about what the sacrifices are that people who farm actually make. And so when it comes to sharing stories about what, are, what we want our roles to be and what, what we need from the community at large and what, and, and what the community at large is getting from us, it's, it brings me back to the importance of the conversation and thinking outside the box in terms of what we're all willing to do and what our specific interests and skill sets are, but really educating people so that they do appreciate that what the farm they have in their midst isn't just this thing that is kind of self-sufficient and takes care of itself, that it, it actually can use support from people around it. So whether that means finding people that, you know, that to go to do the new pick, if they understand, you know, the value of that or educating people of why it's important to, to, to buy milk from, from more of a local place than it is to get it from a dairy that's, you know, three states over, because I think that's another part of the sustainability piece and helping people value what they have to keep them interested to then when, when new political, political things come up in terms of taxes or tariffs or land use restrictions or those kinds of things come up, they're educated and then they know when they're, when they're voting what they're voting for in terms of what supports their communities versus what doesn't, and that farms are a vital part of that. Anybody have anything else they want to add before we, we close down shop for today? I feel like we've we've talked about this a little bit, and uh, and I don't want it to be a diversion, and I feel like it could be another whole topic, but I feel like we've talked a bit, or really talked a lot about today about um, connection to the land and social aspects of that, social ramifications and challenges. And we've talked about economic aspects of that and economic challenges. Um, and it makes me think that another area that we haven't touched on much in, in this episode are more of the environmental um, aspects of it. And just one, I think, We've talked. We've talked a little bit about how um, deeply psychologically uh, important that connection is for farmers, um, and I think another area of stress that we haven't really touched on yet is um, relates to um, changing land, changing weather patterns, um, climate change. And and how that affects uh, farmers' connection to land, and I know that's affecting different parts of the country and different parts of the world um, in different ways and at different rates. Um, here in Vermont, it's uh, well established that we're one of the fastest changing parts of the country in terms of our climate um, and um, weather patterns, and. So that's, you know, that's evident in ways like in the last few decades, our uh, precipitation in Vermont has gone from being similar to Chicago to now it's similar on the same, on the same amounts of precipitation annually as Portland, Oregon. And so it's gone up in, in significant double digit percentages, I think 30 maybe as much as 50%, although I think that's that's projected um, over just a couple of decades. And that's really changed um, the sort of reliability of what farmers are able to, um, in, in terms of how they're able to connect with the land and how they're able to depend on the land as well. Um, and I think that's just an, an added really big stressor. Um, you know, major precipitation changes, major temperature changes. That means that much of the time we aren't able to farm as we have in the past with the same reliability 
And I think that while having that really strong connection, that's like often a multi-generational connection. Um, and there's certain expectations go with that. You know, maybe we'll be able to do this certain thing this time of year. And at another time of year, we'll be able to get this from the land from all the work that we put in. Um, but now maybe um, the ground isn't frozen as much in the winter. And so farmers aren't able to go out into their woodlots and log because it's just a muddy mess out there. You can't get equipment in. And that creates its own um, economic problems. But uh, psychologically, I think that's really hard and, uh, and can make farmers feel like life is a lot more precarious when, when the environment, the, the very ground beneath you is shifting so much. Yeah, that actually is a really good point. And I'm, and I know we're going to cover that um, in another podcast on managing change and uncertainties, but I do want to speak a little bit to it now, because I think you're absolutely right. And I know that statistically speaking, I think when I was looking up trauma and farming, I think this, the stat that I saw from 2020 was that there are 50%, if not more, of farmers who have post-traumatic stress disorder when they have been exposed to environmental disasters on their farms. And so whether that's wind damage, hail, flooding, drought, and you're, and you're absolutely right. And so when it comes to exposure to things that, are, that we, we call traumatic, and I use the word trauma kind of carefully here because I, when we first started to call things traumatic and we first started to even acknowledge that human experiences can be traumatic, trauma is a pretty dramatic word. And I try to stay away from it because as soon as people hear it, especially folks um, who are fairly pragmatic and practical, immediately they hear it as being overly dramatic and they move away from it and think that's not me, that, that doesn't relate to me. But if I, explain, if I, if I do want to say, when I use the word trauma, when we use it, what we're talking about is just what you said. When you go from a place of feeling like you can depend on something, whether it's a person, whether it's the land, whether it's the structure of your house, whether it's your bank account, and you are then faced with a massive change that, that destabilizes that thing, your trust or your ability to depend on that thing that you've depended on, and it makes you feel threatened, um, that is trauma. And when we have those experiences, they undermine our abilities to feel safe, not just in the environment itself where the trauma happened, but they actually, because the trauma happens inside of our bodies, we end up feeling like our bodies aren't safe places to be either. And so for those of us who have been taught that we are, again, independent and we don't need each other, when we go through those overwhelming experiences, the isolation that that creates is, is actually just as traumatic as the event itself because it, it does a whole bunch of things. The first one is it, it forces your attention to be solely on you and what your body is doing in response to that situation. Your blood pressure goes up in, ter in terms of increased heart rate, brainwave function increases, um, your body goes into fight or flight, your central nervous system is flooded with stress hormones. And when that happens, you're no longer able to stay in the part of your brain that you use to think clearly. It actually puts you in, 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 a, in a different part. And when you're in that part, your body is basically um, predestined to continue to experience that same horrific event over and over and over again, even when it's over which can be a really isolating experience. And so part of talking, part of recognizing for farmers who have been through and are continuing to go through all those dramatic changes, it's important in the moment to stop and recognize first that that's what's happened. That if you, if you are going through experiences where the things you used to rely on doing, you're no longer able to rely on and they are destabilizing your ability to do the things you've always done to keep you to keep your life on an even keel that can be registered by your body as traumatic so the first thing to do 
is to recognize that it's happening, to give yourself grace, to be able to recognize and identify the feelings that you're having about that. So if, for example, um, I worked with someone recently who, who was, whose farm was involved in a tornado. And when the tornado went through the farm, it took the roof off the barn, destroyed a whole bunch of stuff. And so every time they would go to go out their back door and, and go to get in the truck to, to drive where they needed to drive to, they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't go out the back door. The thought of getting in the truck and driving was overwhelming. And the back door and the truck had, weren't involved in the tornado. But what was, was when they walked out their back door, got in the truck, and then drove over to see the damage that happened. And so what their bodies did as a result of that, even though they weren't there when the tornado took the roof off the barn, they weren't in the barn when it happened, being there and just seeing the damage and seeing the destruction and recognizing how, how much it was going to take to fix it, pretty much put their bodies in fight or flight every time they thought about even going out the door because the emotional reaction to seeing the destruction was so intense that um, it made them avoid wanting to go out the back door, period. So when it comes to trauma, when we go through those stressful events, when your body's in the middle of it, your sensory nervous system absorbs sensory stuff from that experience. And in addition to absorbing the sensory stuff, it actually formulates a negative thought about you. And it has to do with something that's that's causal, like it's all my fault, I deserve this, I'm powerless, um, I can't do anything right, I can't do enough, um, I have no control. And the combination of your body's absorption of the sensory aspect of the overwhelming experience and that negative cognition keep you stuck. And so they may make you, and the stuckness kind of shows up in terms of things like avoidance, it can show up in terms of things like your sleep gets interrupted. Um, you have intrusive thoughts, like thoughts pop into your mind of the, of the destructive damage. You may do have ruminating thoughts where your thoughts just loop and loop and loop. If I don't, what if I had done this? What if I had done that? If I had just been there, if we had just gone here. Um, and as a result of those experiences, it creates a level of anxiety in your body that makes it really hard to go about your normal life. And so what you're saying, Josh, is that for lots of farmers, and, and I think Ginger, you've actually, Maria, you and Ginger have alleged, you know, referred to this stuff that when people are constantly faced with these kinds of stressors, the residual impact of that lingers and stays, stays in your body until you can recognize it. And so the first step is to recognize that it happened to you. That, some, this bad, that a bad thing happened, that you have feelings connected to that thing that happened, and you have negative thoughts about those things that happened. Secondly, it's being able to then take what you recognize and share that with someone. Tell somebody that it was scary. Tell somebody that it was overwhelming. Tell somebody that you feel like you have no control, that you're powerless, that you, that you can't fix it. Because that, that connection helps to reduce your central nervous system's upset around that experience and helps bring you back to a place of calm where now you can actually plan to do something to make it better. But I think that's going to be a whole other topic when we, when we go forward in terms of um, talking about change and uncertainty, because the trauma piece is a big thing that gets in the way of that. Um, but hopefully that was a little bit of a, of, that explained a little bit about why. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Lisa, it sounds like what you're saying is thinking about farmers and and their families and themselves and their connection to land. When that's threatened or stressed or seems unreliable, it sounds like it's a really natural and normal thing to feel a lot of stress and and maybe hold on to that in the ways that you're saying. Like it's 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 a perfectly normal thing. It would be almost weird if we didn't experience that stress, if we didn't hold on to those thoughts and, and get overwhelmed by them. You're, yep, you're exactly right. Because the thing that, that, that we don't understand very well in, in our culture, but that is very true, is that when you have the experiences that I kind of listed, it's your body's natural way 
of coping with emotional overwhelm. When you are faced with something, you're going along in your life, you're being a good person, you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's and doing all the things you're supposed to do, and then this monumentally bad thing happens, it goes counter to that story. And that story is the story we tell ourselves that helps us get up and put one foot in front of the other every day. So when that story is, is kind of violated or, or challenged by a stressful event or a series of them, like you were describing, it makes it, it, it our bodies go into this, this protective mode where we, where, our, where they intentionally will numb feelings. So when you, when you confront the thing that was frightening, you may have conscious memory of some of it but you can't feel what you felt when it happened. But what will happen is in between the time that you had that upsetting experience and then just trying to live your regular life, fragments of the memory will pop into your head. Fragments of the body-based experience you had when you witnessed it will come back. Um, and, all of, and all of that is natural. It is your central nervous system's way of protecting you from becoming overwhelmed when we encounter this thing that runs exactly opposite the story that we've been taught we're supposed to, to live by in order to, to be happy and healthy and stable. And so, yep, it's a natural, it's a natural reaction. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, it's something that your body is wired to do um, beyond your control. It's not something you get to choose. So a lot of folks, when they encounter stuff like this, have this kind of mythical idea that if I had just done it differently, um, it wouldn't have happened, or I shouldn't be impacted by this. There are people in the world who've been through way worse than me, um, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't allow myself, I shouldn't allow myself to be upset. But in reality, it's not you that's allowing you to do anything. It's your central nervous system that is making that decision for you, because that part of your survival drive kicks into gear to keep you alive. So today we're talking about being connected to the land and, you know, as our theme of mending our fences is uh, part of what we're about. It sounds like key things is to really recognize, you know, how we're feeling and, and maybe articulate them to family or friends, trusted colleagues or even a professional, but what else, what else can we do to kind of mend our fences? So talking to people, reaching out is the first and foremost, but one of the most important things is to, is to find a way, and we'll, we'll talk about this in a second, to, to come back to being grounded in your own body. When you go through when you live your life under chronic toxic stress, like Josh was talking about and Ginger has talked about before, it puts you with one foot in that sense of fight or flight and the other foot sometimes in, in rational thought processing. The goal is to get both feet into rational thought processing because when you are in your body in a conscious grounded way, that is what's real. If you've been through trauma or if you are kind of being buffeted by, by hard thing after hard thing after hard thing, if you let yourself stay in the buffeted by hard things, you won't be able to be grounded enough to have your brain recognize what's real in the here and now. And so the next, so talking first, secondly, learning how to, to breathe, learning some techniques to bring your awareness back to your physical body in a way it helps you recognize that in this moment, my hands, my feet, my head, all my parts are working, that I, that I am in this moment safe and stable. From that place, you can then make choices about what to do with whatever the hard thing is that happened. But if you're not in your body in a grounded way, you're not connected to yourself. If you're not connected to yourself, you're not going to be able to connect to the other people in the world who were there to support you. And so the key, important, the key parts to managing that overwhelm are reaching out to connect other people and connecting to yourself. What are a couple of things that 
we could do to connect to ourselves? So one of the first ones is to use breath. When, actually, you know what? Some people get triggered by breaths. We'll talk about that in a second. The first thing to do is take your feet and push them down on the floor or the surface, wherever you are. Because when you do that, and you bring your, your conscious awareness to what it feels like to have your feet pressing on the floor, it reinforces for your body that you are grounded, that you are not kind of drifting through space. Many times when we go through a traumatic experience, part of the protective thing that our brains do is actually kind of take our conscious awareness out of what our bodies feel like. And that's a really dis disorienting way to feel. And so when you press your feet down on the floor, I ask people, depending on how, how easy or hard it is for them to shift awareness from the upset to what their feet are doing, is to either just kind of bring broad awareness to the bottom of your feet, pushing down on the floor, like your heels and the soles. But if you're really struggling, I'll ask them to actually try to feel their toes too. So tiny toes, second toes, middle toes, big toes, because your brain can't be in two places at once. It can't be in the upset and here focusing on your body. So if you, so pushing your feet to the floor is, is kind of triage at first, feel your feet, and then notice what your muscles are doing in response to the, the pushing of your feet to the floor. Are your shins tightening up? Are your calves getting tighter? Do you feel the tension moving up your legs, like into your knees, into your thighs, into your butt, your belly, your lower back? So it's a gradual kind of awareness of muscle function because when you are attending to what your body's doing, you are fully present. So feet first. If feet feel too overwhelming, sometimes I'll ask people to clench their hands. So if two hands is too hard, one hand. Clench it, notice how tight it feels. Just pay attention to, to all the sensation that goes along with clenching it and then release it. And pay attention to all the sensation that goes along with, with a released hand. Um, then we also do breath work. Breath is kind of a very basic way of bringing yourself back into your conscious body. It's great because either of these, any of these techniques, pressing your feet down, squeezing your hands, or breath work, you can do anywhere, really in anyone's presence. So they're really versatile. So the first simplest way to breathe is to just sit and let your body do it. So I call it letting your body breathe you as opposed to you breathing it. So sitting and just waiting for your lungs to fill up. And as they fill, just notice them filling and notice them emptying. And when they're ready to fill again, no effort, just let them fill and let them empty. And one of the things that people tell me that they find really reassuring about that is when it forces them to stop and recognize that when they're not trying, even when they're not trying to control what their bodies are doing, their bodies are doing it anyway, which is a huge relief. So when you think about trauma and or living under the chronic stress of lots of things that are rolling towards you that you can't control, being able to just stop and notice that the breath will come in and it'll leave, and it'll come in and it'll leave all on its own accord, and you don't have to do anything. So that's the first breath technique I normally re recommend to people. If they feel comfortable with that, then I'll ask them to focus on their breath and then do some counting. So pretty basic um, is bring your breath in for a count of six, exhale for a count of eight. For people who are comfortable, you can have them bring the breath in for six, hang on the inhalation for a minute. So count like two, give it like a two count and then exhale on the eight. So that way you're giving your body a minute to pause, to get re-regulated, to take all the oxygen in that you've, you've just brought in, which then feeds the rest of your body and moves you away from that fight or flight response. Some people do okay with counting. Some people get overwhelmed by it. So it really, it's really kind of trial and error. So if we had to do this in the form of um, triage, feet first, then breath. Um, another, uh, other way of orienting people from a sensory standpoint is to get them to pay attention to five sensory things in their environment, something that they see, something that they hear, something that they feel, something that they smell, and something that they um, can taste. 
because that, again, when you're bringing yourself back to your body, you are in a place of conscious awareness that is different than where you are when you're in fight or flight. So there are some pretty basic tools that I use with people to get them started. Um, and then, you know, there, there will be more techniques that we'll talk about as we go through some more of the episodes, but um, there are some basics to start with for folks who are really kind of in the middle of struggling with something. One more, and I almost didn't say this, but I'm thinking that there are some folks out there who are used to dealing, who are used to doing some of the things we've already talked about. It's also important, I, I was reluctant to, to say this because when, when it comes to dealing with traumatic overwhelm, thought processing can be hard because in order to be aware of your thoughts, you have to be in the part of your brain that functions to do that. But if you're in a trauma response, it's, it's hard to do, it's hard to get there. But for some people, once they've done the, the breathing or they've done the feet pressing or clenching, asking themselves if the thoughts they're thinking are helpful is another, is another way of managing. Like, is what I'm thinking right now a helpful thought? Oftentimes when we go through trauma, people immediately go to blanket negative. It's, it's all going to be terrible. It's never going to get better. It's always going to be this way. And so being able to bring them back themselves back into a place where they can ask if the thought is helpful. And if they're finding that they're stuck in natural, in kind of that natural negative loop, in, inviting themselves to actually look at what's real right here and right now. So what do you know is true right now? How do you know you're safe right now? Well, I'm breathing on my own. I can feel my feet. Um, I have a roof over my head. The electric works. I have running water. Um, I'm in my car. I'm in my house. Whatever it is that represents safety for them. So engaging cognition, engaging thought can also be a way to help people get grounded. But it's not the first thing to think about because if people are in fight or flight, they don't have access to that part of their brain function right then. So it can actually make them more upset. So if people, if we can help people get to, to, to use physical sensation to come into their bodies first, then you can add the thought part at the end because they're, they're already back here and they have a higher probability of identifying what's helping and, and what's not. Tools for mending our fences. What we've done today is we've looked at connection to the land in terms of ways that it's, it's a really wonderful thing. And we've also talked about, talked about what makes it hard. We've talked about ways to look at the challenges, accept that things are challenging and that they can be hard. We've talked about ways to address those challenges personally, um, in terms of where our families and communities are concerned and how to address them possibly in a larger way. And we're not only mending fences with each other, but we're mending fences with ourselves. Thanks, Lisa, Maria, and Ginger. I really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you for listening to Mending Our Fences. We hope we have provided some insights into the deeper side of some farm stressors and provided some ideas about how to manage them. This podcast was funded by the Northeast Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Network, also known as Cultivemos.